One of the things that I really uh, enjoy about living in the Bay Area is, and maybe you've experienced this too, the interesting people that you meet, right? Yeah, some of you laugh already. When you think about the, the relationships that you've had with people, uh, recently I was talking with somebody who was new to our congregation, and you know, eventually we got to the question of, so, so what do you do? And this person said, well, I work at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, and okay, well, what do you, what do, you do there? Well, um, we're working on building the new accelerators for the Large uh, Hadron Collider over near Geneva. So if you know what that is, it's the largest machine in the world. And what they do is they accelerate particles close to the speed of light, as far as I understand. This is a pastor's description, so give me some grace. Um, they accelerate particles close to the speed of light and, and then like blow them up into each other. And so then they can discover things about those particles. Uh, and what, they're, what this person's working on is building the next generation of accelerators to be able to accelerate those particles to a, a higher even speed than the previous ones. Pretty interesting. And this has been repeated, uh, and you can, by the way, if you don't know who that is, have fun figuring it out, right? It might be here this morning. Um, and, but there's all kinds of things like that. In my experience in the Bay Area, uh, I've had that repeated over and over again, and oftentimes I feel sort of shocked, like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, and people doing things, sometimes lofty things, uh, big things it seems like, important things. But this is another lesson that I've learned in my time in the Bay Area, is that just because we might be doing lofty things or, or big things, it doesn't mean that we're immune from the painful parts of life or the bitter parts of life. In fact, sometimes those are there just the same or even more so, but they're obscured by the other things that we're doing. And this is the story that we're going to look at in the book of Acts today. It's a story about a lofty individual, if you will, who nonetheless is grappling with some deep inner pain, and God reaches through the lofty bits and speaks into the inner heart and mind of this person. So it's going to be a fun journey for us to explore and to see how God does that, and then maybe perhaps prayerfully God might be doing that in our lives this morning as well. So would you open up to the book of Acts chapter 8, the book of Acts chapter 8. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will pass one to you. We'd love for you to be able to follow along in the scripture this morning. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, you will find in that Bible that we're handing out on page 633, if it's the white Bible that you're getting and if it's the all blue cover, you're going to find it on page 534. So turn to one of those pages and, and then look there, you'll see Acts chapter 8. Uh, verse 26. And we love it when people raise their hand and, and take a Bible, uh, so don't be shy about that. And if you don't have a Bible at home and you want to take this one with you, keep it on your nightstand, maybe do some further reading. You know, you don't have to ask permission, just take it. We want you to have it. So uh, that's a gift from us. Now, in this particular section in the book of Acts that we're reading, uh, we're looking uh, at the ministry of a man named Philip. And last week, we, we saw uh, some pretty neat stuff that he did. And then that, this process of him ministering to others, the story of his ministry is continuing. So that's a little bit of uh, just very short background here. So that when I read in verse 26, if you want to follow along with me, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, 
who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. This is from the prophet Isaiah, so it would have been written uh, 770 years or so before the event that we're reading right now. Important to note that. And he was reading this. Uh, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, which is another city nearby, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And what I'd like to do in the time that we have this morning is to think a little bit about this Ethiopian and his story, and then we'll draw some parallels, hopefully, to our story uh, and some interesting uh, things that maybe the scriptures have to say about our lives, not just about the Ethiopians. So this Ethiopian is remarkable for a number of reasons. Uh, Homer says that uh, Ethiopia was uh, at the edge of the world. There's a reference in um, the Odyssey to the Ethiopia being the edge of the world. And, and so those of you who have been with us on this journey, you know, at the beginning of the book of Acts, it was said, Jesus said that the, the gospel will go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so here, when we have the good news, the gospel coming to the Ethiopian, it's as if it's already taking place. Uh, what was said at the beginning of the book, the, the structure of the book is that the gospel, the good news, keeps going forward and touching more and more lives. And maybe it'll touch one of our lives this morning as well. Now, this, remar this Ethiopian is remarkable, too, because he uh, is a person of position. And you see that in the text. It says he's a court official to the queen, and he's responsible for all the treasure. Now, in Ethiopia, the, the king was in charge, but he was so spiritual that he didn't have anything to do with the, the earthly uh, things, the, the mundane things. And so the queen mother was responsible for the treasury, and all the belongings, and this Ethiopian worked closely with her um, to watch over all of the treasure of the kingdom. And he was on a personal spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So 
uh, he was some sort of a God-fearer uh, and was worshiping or wanted to be worshiping the God of the Jews. Uh, that was part of what characterized his, his personal life. And he's returning in this chariot, which was basically the ancient equivalent of a Learjet. A little slower, but basically the same idea. A wealthy person who would be sitting in a chariot like that would be returning. Uh, this would be a big sign of just how important and how lofty this man was. Now, but he's also remarkable because of his condition. He's a eunuch. Uh, and so it was common practice in the courts in that day uh, for the royalty in all different kinds of nations to be surrounded by eunuchs. And I guess that was so there would be uh, less possibility of funny business going on. Um, but uh, being a eunuch, as you can imagine, was fraught with all kinds of uh, social complexity and uh, is associated with a lot of shame, uh, even in that day. We sometimes read that over and think, oh, well, that was just a normal thing. But just because it's a normal thing doesn't mean that it didn't come with some baggage. And that's the case for uh, this Ethiopian, um, that he's a eunuch, and undoubtedly there would have been some baggage. Even in Jerusalem, uh, as a Gentile God-fearer, um, he would have been regarded on some level as impure because of his state as a eunuch. And there would have been restrictions on how he could worship in the temple, even how close he could go into the temple area. And so this man, even though he had such a lofty, noble position, he was also very familiar with humility, humiliation perhaps, and shame. Those would have been a part of his story as well. So here he is. He's in this chariot, and he's reading the book of Isaiah, which as I said, would have been written uh, you know, some 770 years before the Ethiopian was sitting in that chariot reading it. And he, he, but they don't have the New Testament, right? They don't have the Bible like we have it. So for them, the Bible is the Old Testament. So he's reading the Bible, essentially, and he's reading Isaiah. And he's trying to make sense of what he's reading. And I want you to imagine what it would have been like for this eunuch to read these verses in, uh, in Acts 32 and 33. It says, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent. And so he's imagining somebody who is in a very difficult scenario, but has to kind of be silent about it. I wonder if the eunuch felt that way in his life. I wonder if this is the connection, part of the connection. How many times had he had to comfort himself in silence as regards his condition? And then verse 33, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. How often had the eunuch felt a kind of a humiliation because of his particular condition? And so he was connecting in, and he wants to know more about this text. And so in verse 34, it says, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, Jesus taught that this 770-year-old 70, text pointed to him. The text of Isaiah pointed to him. That's what Jesus taught. He referred to himself as a servant, and that language is, is most robustly developed in the book of Isaiah. And he said, uh, it was written of him, Jesus said, it's written of me that I will suffer uh, many things, and be treated with contempt. And there's nowhere else in the Old Testament 
where that's more developed than in this chapter in the book of Isaiah. And so Philip and the disciples, they would have known that Jesus applied this chapter 53 of Isaiah to himself. In fact, um, some 85 times in the New Testament, the writers in the New Testament are quoting or alluding to the book of Isaiah. So when we think back about those moments when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus and he's explaining in the Old Testament all the things that are pointing to him, there's a strong, strong likelihood that a lot of that explaining came from the book of Isaiah, judged by the fact that the New Testament writers so often went to the book of Isaiah, and in particular, they often went to this chapter that we're looking at this morning. So then when he's crucified, when Jesus goes to the cross, uh, it's, it happens in a way that makes sense of what we read in this prophecy. So we've looked at it already, but if we put up Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4 through 6, it says this, it says, um, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And imagine trying to figure out what all this means 770 years earlier. But then Jesus comes and he goes to the cross and it starts to make sense. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now to be hung on a tree was to be cursed by God. So when afterwards they were seeing Jesus there on that tree, it was like he was smitten by God. And so suddenly this text, 770-year-old text, starts to make sense in the light of who Jesus is. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. And Jesus, you know, was whipped. And so he he had those stripes on his back that would have been the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it's pretty hard to do that in, on your own, like to go out and say, well, I'm going to fulfill this prophecy. You know, it sure seems like God was behind it in the particulars. And there's so many more particulars. We're just mentioning a few, but so many throughout the Old Testament. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then a few verses later, um, we read this in, in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, the suffering servant, now we know to be Jesus, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's a reference to Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So our own sinfulness, if we want to talk about it like that, and what has been done to us, so there's, there's two sources here, our own sinfulness and the sins committed against us, they have the power to fill us with all kinds of guilt and shame. And Jesus, as we read in this prophecy, is going to come to make us righteous so that we will have no guilt and shame ultimately before God through the work that Jesus did on that cross. And if you don't have guilt and shame before God, then you don't have it before anybody. Because God gets the last say. Because He's God. He gets to determine 
our condition and who we really are, our identity, our very identity itself is determined by God. So the, 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 then we see that Jesus has removed, in, if we put together his life and Isaiah, he's removed the threat of the loving relationship between us and God. And by extension, between us and other human beings. And that is the good news that Philip would have been explaining to the Ethiopian. That God covers over his shame. God covers over his guilt. So that a few verses later in Isaiah, we read this, chapter 54, verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, God says, shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And then, following in the story of the Ethiopian, the fitting response to such news is belief. We hear... And we have a decision to make. Am I going to acknowledge as true what I have just learned from the Scripture about the God of the Bible? And to do so, to acknowledge it as true, is to believe. And the appropriate outward initial signal of that belief is baptism. Because within baptism, we'll talk about this more on the 17th when we have a baptism, Within baptism, all the the symbols of what we've been talking about are contained. And so the Ethiopian sees water and he's like, what's to prevent me from being baptized right now? I believe, essentially, is what he's saying. He's signaling his faith and it's his response. And so they go into the water beautifully and the Ethiopian says to God, yes, thank you. I want your salvation. I want it. I believe it. So then the question becomes, that's the story of the Ethiopian, and now let's talk about the story of us, because there's parallels from this story to our lives. Like the Ethiopian, we all are a combination of nobility and shame. We wear triumphs on our sleeves, but struggles deep inside in the invisible places. And sometimes we look good on the outside, And often we attribute mastery to one another in life because we look good on the outside. And I know this is the case in a church setting. And people who are new to a church setting, they sometimes come and they feel like, well, that's where all the good people go. And when they walk in, they look around and they say, look at all these people who have it figured out. And it's a huge misconception because the church is filled with people who don't have it figured out, who are a mess. We're all a mess, starting with me or ending with me, whatever you want. Uh, we're a mess. And that's why we come to community. That's why we come to worship. That's why we come to God. Not because we have it all figured out, but because we don't. And we need God. And, and I've never met anybody when I've really gotten to know them. And I, I, this happens so often. I attribute mastery in life to a person. And then maybe something happens and I start to share some of my struggles in life. And before you know it, outcome pouring the struggles that that person is dealing with as well. 
And so it's just this dynamic that happens over and over again, and it's the human condition. We're filled with nobility and shame and guilt all at the same time. Now, much of the guilt and shame that we have is like the plight of the Ethiopian. And so um, I've been asking people this week about the sources of our guilt and shame. Um, And shame doesn't really distinguish its source. Sometimes it's because of what we've done and sins that we've committed, the ways that we've harmed ourselves or harmed other people, done things that God did not design us to do. That can be the source of our shame and, and guilt. Or it's something that can be happened to us, a cruelty that we've experienced from without. Um, but there's all kinds of spiritual minefields when it comes to shame and guilt. And I just want to suggest a few. Again, this is sort of me texting friends and staff and saying, hey, what are the, what are the modern sources of shame and guilt uh, in our world today? So this is suggestive. We'll go ahead and put that list up there. Um, so, of course, if we take our cues from the Ethiopian, the whole, con- the whole, the whole minefield of sexuality can be a, a, a minefield. The whole field of sexuality, I should say, can be a minefield of guilt and shame. God created this beautiful thing, human sexuality, and it gets twisted. And so uh, there's an obvious connection here in, in the life of the eunuch. Um, and then there's this, um, this appearance thing. Again, the eunuch would have probably wrestled with this. We could go on. I don't have time to go into all of this. This is just suggestions so that maybe, you know, I really believe this, that as we're gathered together like this, that God is, is present by his spirit. And so as I'm reading through this list, there just may be some part of this list that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to consider. Some aspect of your life that's laden with guilt and shame. And that might be the opening, the doorway through which you will encounter the living God. And so as I'm going through this, you know, we do this. This is a spiritual thing, and we're prayerful that God actually is on the move potentially in our midst right now. So sexuality, appearance, maybe one of these will, will, will tug at you. Family of origin, you know, what kind of dark things are in the past? Did I inherit? Am I carrying forward? Um, parenting is a vast minefield of guilt and shame. Uh, singleness, um, being a victim. Have you ever had somebody uh, break into your house or your car? You feel that invasion, and you feel a little bit of shame, like, wow, somebody was in my place, Right? And it, it, there's, there's, there's just an intense emotional... Now, imagine, you know, we, we move that into some realms of being a victim of things that are much worse, like, like rape and, 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 and attack and all this kind of stuff. And, and all kinds of shame can come crowding in. There is shame associated with race. There's shame associated with academic or vocational failure. Uh, maybe we lost a job and, and we're carrying that in, in our inner part. And when we're sitting in conversations or at school picking up our kids and, and we have to say, no, I got laid off. And all kinds of shame washes over us because, you know, the person we're talking to is, you know, doing some lofty thing. And, and we feel that sense. Or maybe uh, those of you who are in academia, you know, this is Berkeley, so we have all these type A, crazy, intense people. And we're like, I got to be on my paper, ah, you know. <laughs> so much shame comes flooding in. You know, addictions can be uh, a whole constellation of shame and guilt and financial problems and all kinds of, you know, we could go on and on. Again, this is a suggestive list, not a, a comprehensive list. And shame feels like, like this. It's, it's a sense um, that you are, be, you are being seen as different or less than. That's how we, 
That's how we experience it. It's a sense of feeling like I'm a failure or a fraud. It's a good word. It's a sense of rejection. And I would venture to guess that on some level, and some of us may be so out of touch with this that we can't even see it, so God help us to see clearly. On some level, shame touches every single one of us. Every single one of us. The gospel is good news for shame because it has to do with overriding messages. As people, we're continually receiving messages about ourselves. In fact, we're continually giving ourselves messages about ourselves. Sometimes I think I'm my own whole entire shame culture, right? About the things that I can, I can say and, and, and how I can evaluate myself. And the gospel is good news because it's a powerful message that overrides the other message. I think of, of a computer disk, and there's information on it. But if you erase it, what really happens there is a new message, a new uh, bit of information overrides the old. It's written over it, right? And that's why the gospel is good news, is because it writes over the old. It writes over the previous story. And it's a message of love and acceptance. This is why it's so powerful. And it's not just love and acceptance from anybody. It's love and acceptance from the God of the universe. It's affirmation. And it has the power to write over all of those other messages that come crowding in. And then the community, which is the church, the people of God, is positioned and called to affirm that message. So first of all, God says it in Jesus Christ, the message of affirmation and love. And then the community of faith is called upon in a daily, tangible, local way to reaffirm that message over and over again in our lives because we have a tendency to forget. We keep forgetting who we are in Christ. And the community of faith exists to remind us. And baptism is an initial signal of us letting the community in. And so if you've never been baptized before, um, or if something we're talking about in this scripture this morning is tugging on your heart, or if you want to say yes to Jesus, uh, and you want to show that and enter into, invite the community to be the, the, the hands and feet the, that affirm the good news of Jesus Christ in your life, then baptism, March 17th, is a great way for you to do that. Even some of you haven't been, you weren't baptized, like, and now you feel bad because you're like, ah, I've been a Christian a long time. I didn't get baptized. Now I'm embarrassed to go back and get baptized. That's ridiculous. Let's just celebrate. It doesn't matter when, okay? Let's celebrate what God has done. Okay. Now I want you to see as I finish up how, this is the last thing, how this happens with the Ethiopian. And I imagine if he's, if he's like me, so what would have happened there in that interaction? I would have been, you know, I'm reading Isaiah. I'm not, I'm not understanding, but it's, it's, it's piquing my interest and curiosity. It's touching something deep in my heart that needs healing. Then God sends this guy, Philip, and he comes and he talks about it, and it opens up this, the scripture to me, and I, I understand it. Then uh, I get baptized, and then I'm going to get back in my Learjet slash chariot. What am I going to do next? I'm going to keep reading in Isaiah, right? I'm going to keep reading Isaiah. 
So I've been in Isaiah 53, and then I'm going to go through 54, which talks about that love of, I quoted, the love of God can't be removed from you. And then my mind is about to be absolutely blown. Because I'm going to get to Isaiah 56. And here's what I'm going to read there. This is the eunuch in verse 3. It's talking about God's salvation for the foreigner. The Ethiopian is a foreigner. But not only that, verse 3. And we're going to put it up here. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Written 770 years before he's reading it. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, which is a, a way of expressing belief who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and with my, within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not prevent it, a way of expressing belief, and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That includes you. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather This is where it's connecting right to us. I will gather yet others to him. Are you one of those yet others being gathered to him besides those already gathered? I'm here this morning to tell you that God is speaking similar words over you in your brokenness, in your guilt, in your shame. And he is gathering you to himself, as we just read. These things can be hard to grasp, hard to really live into, hard to embrace. And one of the blessings that God has given us is the house of prayer. So every Sunday, we transform this school auditorium into a house of prayer. And right now, it's a house of prayer. So as we finish up, maybe you're having a hard time embracing the message. And you need somebody to pray the message into you. So we're going to have prayer counselors available this morning. We've got some time for it to be able to pray with you. And if there's an aspect of guilt and shame that you need to bring before the Lord and have somebody pray God's grace over you, then I'm inviting you, we're inviting you to take advantage of this opportunity in this house of prayer and to be prayed for. We'd love to do that. Just maybe, you know, I mean, there's the Ethiopian. He's sitting in this chariot, and God sends Philip to help him. And maybe that's your story today. You've been sitting in your chariot, and God has sent one of our prayer counselors or somebody in this congregation or the person who brought you this morning. God has sent a Philip to help you. And that's what we want to be this morning. So, so don't, don't be scared. Don't, don't leave it on the table. 
Embrace what God has for you in prayer. God, would you now take the time that we have as we're going to celebrate communion together. Would you wrap it up in your beauty and would you move in a very Holy Spirit-led way in our lives this morning to bring about the kind of transformation that deep down we hunger and crave. And, And thank you. Thank you, God, for speaking into our lives in the deep hidden places and caring about that more than you care about whatever lofty thing we might be doing. Thank you that your love reaches to the most important places of our lives. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And of course, this all reflects on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ uh, on the cross and the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body, which then goes all the way back to Isaiah and to what was prophesied so many years earlier. And I would just say that if you find yourself in the position of the Ethiopian as somebody who believes, then this table is for you. What we do is we come down the center aisle, we take the bread, we dip it into the cup, and then we go back on one of the outside aisles. And this is a time for you to be reminded of that powerful love which is pursuing you even this morning. So come to the table when you're ready.